0: We'll be in Titus, Titus chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be really looking at two verses today, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But I'm going to read, uh, actually just 9 through verse 15. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argue, argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for the blessed, our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. So as we start, I want to ask you if you've ever felt trapped, all right, trapped in some kind of a situation. Um... Lots of, lots of things can make you feel trapped. A marriage could make you feel trapped. The job, some, some circumstances in your life, some situation at school, some false accusation, a sickness could make you feel trapped. I've even talked to moms who sometimes feel trapped at home during the day. You know, they're like, I mean, just a fleeting thought. But it's like, I just kind of want to escape for a few minutes. I kind of want to get out from under this pressure that is weighing down on me. When I think of someone who was trapped, I think of Joseph. You know, there's, there's a man who truly was trapped. Here he was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. In that situation, he, he, found, he found some favor, but then he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. No way, no seemingly no way to get out. No rights, no freedom. Life as a prisoner, life as a slave. As bad as our situations can be, I would suspect that none of us have felt quite like Joseph—to literally be in a prison, really, literally to be a slave. Recently, I finished a book, um, and it dealt with uh, living in, uh, in the Soviet Union under Stalin and just what that was like to be thrown into the Gulags and what it would have, what it was like to uh, know that just a neighbor could have. Falsely accuse, falsely accuse you of something and off you go for a couple of years. Or you just at the whim of some soldier who could just take you out if you wanted to. In fact, the impression I got from reading the book was like, just to live in the Soviet Union at that point would be like living in prison. Like, just to go about your daily at any point knowing you have no ultimate freedom, knowing that it could be taken from you at any point. That's oppression. Alright? How many have lived in and been trapped by a system of oppression over the centuries. Call it communism, tyranny, or just straight up slavery. Now, how many hundreds of millions have had to live like that? And slavery, perhaps, is the ugliest of all of the institutions, but sadly, it has been a reality in our world. And in the early church, it was a reality. They lived in, a, in the Roman Empire. And they lived and breathed in the air of a system with slavery in it. We're in churches. It's hard for us to imagine this, but you'd be in church and you would have free individuals and those who were slaves, side by side, learning how to, figure out how how to live for the glory of God together. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul has been saying that the grace of God has appeared and it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives In this present age. And sometimes this present age. Leaves you holding the short end of the stick. Your lot in life may be at the bottom. Of some social or political or economic ladder. And perhaps the lowest state would be to be a slave. And Paul is writing to this church. And addressing. So we know that a percentage of you here. Our slaves, and Paul wants everyone to know who hears his words, that God's grace is enough not only to endure slavery, but to be an effective instrument for God. All right, I'll put it this way, here's kind of the main point this morning. God's grace is sufficient to make us useful for the kingdom, no matter the difficulty of our circumstances. All right, God's grace is sufficient to make us useful for the kingdom, no matter the difficulty of our circumstances. So Paul writes to Titus, and he says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters. All right? That's hard to hear, isn't it? I mean, we kind of like rise up against that kind of an idea. As a, as a human being, especially as an American human being living in this the century that we do, you know, we kind of live by models like live free or die. And so it's jarring to hear Paul say, tell the bondservants, Tell those who are enslaved that they are to be submissive to their own masters. And when we come across a passage like this, it can be tempting to want to downplay it, come up with ways that it doesn't quite mean exactly what it says, feel ashamed of what Paul writes here, that he doesn't condemn slavery or speak about human rights or freedom, or just make it about our jobs and just shift off, like, like just kind of move on to like modern day. And miss the heart of what Paul's actually instructing here. I want us to actually like press into the even the uncomfortability of it. That Paul's instructing, uh, giving instructions for the slaves on Crete who were in, in the early church. Now, in the context of the Roman world, you would there were up to a third, maybe up to 50% of the population would have been slaves. And not um, slavery looked different. All right, you could, you might become a slave by war. You might be a slave by birth. You might be a slave because you had a debt. You could have been kidnapped. Um, you could have been born into slavery. So those who were bond servants were there, sometimes were you know, working as laborers. Sometimes they would have been teachers. Sometimes they would have been doctors. So I mean, they would have been. Some of them were, would be very well educated and served in important roles. But nevertheless, they were still owned by another. And so when Paul writes this, we're, the, the people reading it are not thinking about it like we think about it on this side of history. We have been experienced the blessing of centuries of biblical worldview being implemented and applied to a culture. But we need to step back and recognize, I got to get into here a little bit before I can step out. Remember, I've said before, the Bible is written to them but for us. So I have to understand what he's saying to them first, even as foreign as it may sound to us to speak this way. We can admit some certain realities, all right? No one wants to be a slave. I don't care when you lived or what circumstances you were living, that was not the desired outcome for someone's life. It goes against human nature. In fact, Paul's going to say in a few minutes, we'll see that he goes, if you have the opportunity to be free, take it. But in Paul's day, everyone understood that that's the way the world was. You know, you go to battle with another nation, and if you win, you get the people. If you lose, you go. That was the system of economics and politics, and the legal system was oriented that way. In some ways, you look at it and say, well, that wasn't very fair. And here comes the old saying, life isn't fair, all right? And sometimes it doesn't go the way we Desire or the day we want. But Paul in his letters and Peter in his does not ignore this reality that existed in the church. We find it in Colossians and Ephesians and, and 1 Peter and uh, Corinthians and other places. So, like it or not, the church had slaves in it, and, it needed, and they needed to be instructed. And as much as we'd want it to make Paul's cause to free them, the message of the gospel is not an economic or legal or political message of social change. It is first and foremost a message that sets captives free from sin by the power of the cross and the resurrection. A God in his gracious providence would someday end legal slavery in the wake of gospel preaching. So where the gospel goes, freedom does follow. Sometimes we wish it followed faster, but we've seen that over time. And that day had not come in those early days of the church. And so when Paul was going around preaching, going to these new areas and to pagan societies, he was making sure that when he preached, he was putting the first things first. The familiar verses from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, the apostles kept the main thing, the main thing. They preached Christ and salvation and the work that would restore all things ultimately and fulfill all the, the prophets, what the prophets had spoken. And so that's, that's the banner. That's the, that's the message we bring into a person's life, into a new nation, into a new community. We're preaching Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And any lasting Social change, economic change, political change comes after the preaching of the gospel. Can't reverse the order. It's the cross before cultural change. And so remember that. You know, and when you're looking even at an individual's life, you know, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody you know, don't go at it like, I need to change their behavior and then I'll try to bring Christ in. You've like, totally missed the point. You preach Christ, don't preach about changing the, what you're doing. I'm not saying you can't give good advice. I'm just saying the goal is not to just change their behavior. The goal is to bring them Christ and then let him do the work of changing them. That's on an ind- and the individual level. It's also true on a cultural level. So we must insist on in our own lives and in the life of the church preaching the gospel first. So we come back to Titus. You have a church, maybe up to half of the people there are slaves, and so what are you going to tell them? Paul says, they're to submit, or to be submissive to their own masters in everything. That's got to be one of the most difficult commands in the whole book. Obey and follow the direction of your owner or your earthly master. We can think of this in kind of in terms of a like the chain of command you might find. The idea is like a chain of command you might find in the military where you have those, you know, maybe officers who are over in authority, those soldiers who are under them. And those soldiers under them are to receive the commands, follow the direction, follow the order of those who have been given authority. And Paul is saying, follow this chain of command of authority. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. If you are a bond servant when called, do not be concerned about it. And here's where he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And he goes on to say, you know, we all belong to Christ ultimately, whether you're, whether you're slave or free. We belong to Christ. It's not your social standing that defines you. It is your standing in Christ. In Christ, all believers are free men, and in Christ, all believers are bondservants of Jesus. So spiritually speaking, they're all on the same level. And Paul is saying, I want you to learn to think about that, or to learn to think that way. And it's hard. It's difficult. This is a difficult topic for, or instruction to give. Consider the humility it would be, the humility it would take to receive this instruction. I know it's hard, but like put yourself in the shoes of somebody in that church who's hearing this, and you know that like he's talking to me, and I'm supposed to obey this. The humility that that would take, the difficulty that Titus would have in delivering that message. Like, I imagine delivering that message, and then there's somebody up in the church, some, you know, 22-year-old guy who comes forward after the service, and he's like, I want to talk to you. And he's like, I'm a slave. What am I supposed to do? Like, we've been in counseling situations before, but that's a tough one. And it would be worthy for you on your own time to consider what would you say. How would you instruct someone who says, I'm a slave. How am I supposed to do this? These are my circumstances. It's going to take a kind of surrender to God's sovereignty that most of us have never had to take that leap before. And, and, and on top of it, he's got all these questions about, well, what do you mean I'm supposed to submit in, in everything? I mean, I remember what Jesus said. Like he would have known the, perhaps the words of Jesus. And, and, and remember the, the story about Jesus reading from the prophet Isaiah and where Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon me because I, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read that and said, this is fulfilled in me. And then this, this, this servant of another comes along and says, well, Jesus said that. Well, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to me as a slave of another man? Can you feel the way of that conversation? And that what they would pray about after that conversation. Titus would have to go again and explain the power of the gospel to free everybody from sin and death. And that in this life, he is, he is born again, blessed by God and free from the penalty of his sin. But he may never be free in this life. And he'd never be free from the conditions in which he lived. But he is forever delivered from the dungeon of death and is made a kingdom of God's, a member of God's kingdom. And he'd say, But you know what? I want you to know this, young man, that Jesus is soon coming back. And that there, there will be no more slavery, there will be no more chains. In other words, the circumstances under which you live are not the end of your life. It's not the end of your story. There's going to be a new heavens and there's going to be a new earth where there be no more tears. And then have to instruct him, say, this is the hope that every Christian has. And this is your hope whether you are in chains or whether you are suffering or if you feel trapped in something and you can't get out. Some circumstances, he says, this is your hope. But the reality is, it's the hope of, of you if you have everything going for you. It's still true that your life is short, and this is not the end of your life. That you need to be looking or trusting in and hoping in the end of the story of what is to come, of what is promised. Keep putting the hope, your hope in the king who has accomplished all of his purposes in the world and one day will return to right all the wrongs. That is how Christians are called to endure hardship, to look to the hope that is to come. Isn't that what Paul just goes on to say here? He says, In uh, verse um, 13, end of verse 12, we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And what are we doing? We are waiting. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how we are enduring through this present age. Put your hope into the one who is coming. And then know this, young man, your status in this vapor of a life. The Bible talks about our life that way. It's just a vapor. It's here and gone. Whatever status you have is no measure measure of God's blessing in your life. In God's kingdom, the last will be first, and the first will be last. You may be last here, but that, that may make you first in God's kingdom. Or I think of the way that Hannah prayed. Uh, In the beginning of of Samuel. Longing for a son. And she had kind of been bumped down in the status of, of society. And she prays this. Lord, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes. And to inherit a seat of honor. I mean, she was saying that trusting that that is how God's system works that those who are lowly will not always remain lowly when they trust in him God knows our circumstances he knows where we are and he knows that at times we're going to feel trapped again trapped by all kinds of things God can put you in a place that's hard, a difficult marriage, a hard job, a place where it's hard to be without a friend, a disability, or perhaps the hardest of them all, a slave. And in those times, we can say, God, this is where I'm at. But one day you said you'll exalt the lowly, and I'm trusting in you trusting in that day and I'm trusting you to use me in these circumstances for whatever part you have and whatever part that is can bring you glory and James James write let let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation right the lowly one in this world who has Christ has reason to exalt and what he's been given in Christ. So I'll say it again. Our status in this life is never the measure of God's blessing. That measure will come in his kingdom. So that's got to be pretty, that's got to be rooted pretty deep in somebody's life. All right, that needs to, that needs to be deep down for the most difficult of circumstances. And then we can start to thinking, okay, like I know this is true. I know that's where my hope is. But now what do I do, all right? And the, and the command is to submit in everything. And then you start asking, well, really? In everything? Well, what about this or that circumstance, Paul? Well, thankfully, Paul does go on to explain to Titus, well, let me tell you, let me give you a picture of what it means, of what you're supposed to live like as a servant. He lists four things there, all right? To be well-pleasing. Do what is acceptable to your master. Work in such a way, they say, you do a good job. They're not to be argumentative, not to talk back. If you're a parent, you know what it, what it is, all right? Don't be that servant. Do not pilfer, don't steal off the top. Like I said, some of these, those who were enslaved were, had high levels of responsibility in the home. Um, high, uh, uh, they were entrusted with important matters of the house. And so they had opportunity, oftentimes, to be able to skim a little bit off the top. He says, Don't do that. You can't steal. You, if you think, you're, you think you have a right to it, don't steal. And show all good faith, he says. Be trustworthy, be fully faithful, be one who can be trusted. If this applies for someone who's enslaved, let me tell you, it applies to you when you're not. All right, if you've got, wherever God has you in terms of the work world, the workforce, you should be the most trusted one at at work. You should be the most faithful one. The one who shows up on time, maybe even shows up a couple minutes early, all right, gets the job done. The one who says, if I the boss says, if I want to entrust somebody with an important task, You should be the one that comes to mind. And if that's not you, know that, what we're going to get to in a second, you're not adorning the the doctrine of God very well in your workplace. That should should be the kind of workers that we are. And it should be obvious to those around us that we serve a master greater than our boss. Because we don't really just work for whoever you work for. You work for Jesus. That's he's your boss. At work. As you, be, as you begin to think that way, our behavior will change. But again, that question, does it mean everything? Is there a limitation? And this, this is going to be a principle I'm going to apply to this circumstance, and I'm going to apply it actually next week when we look at governments also. And the answer is yes, there is a limit. And one of the limits, I think, is in verse 10. He says, they are to act in such a way, and he he lists a couple ways. Be submissive in everything. And then he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, those who are bondservants in the church are to obey in everything, as long as in everything God is honored by his actions, and his actions reflect the truth of the doctrine of God. You see that? The slaves are never to obey an earthly master when such obedience would dishonor his true master, Jesus. That was a really, they lived with a lot of tension. Like, that was difficult. That would be difficult. Serving and submitting as you're told to do, your earthly master, while never doing what dishonors your king, Jesus. Jesus. That's difficult. That's a tight spot. Be submissive to this sinner, which every act of submission taught in the Bible is telling you to be submissive to another sinner. In terms of these earthly relationships. Yet, and adorn the doctrine of God at the same time. So that's the first principle in, in trying to understand does everything. what's the limits to everything in a sense. What is the framework in which I understand when I'm called to do something by a man, but I'm sure that that wouldn't honor Christ? What do I do? The first principle is this submit as a means of adorning the doctrine of God, but never submit in a way that causes you to stop adorning the doctrine of God or the gospel of God. And similarly, I'll give you this it's a second principle here, where be submissive in everything. But Paul uses this phrase uh, when he's, in Ephesians when he's talking about wives, that they're to submit uh, to their husbands as unto the Lord. But in all submissive, submissive relationships, we submit as unto the Lord. But we don't submit to that authority as our Lord. And there's an important distinction. Earthly authorities may be over us um, may be put over us by the Lord, but they are never set there to be Lord over us. So I may have someone that I'm called to submit to, but I'm never called to submit them as my Lord. Like, they're not the ultimate authority in my life. If one of those authorities asks us to submit to them as Lord, then we are, to, then we are not to obey for century, the early Christians for the first few centuries, all they had to say was Caesar is Lord, and they'd be okay. Now, they were to honor Caesar, like they, they were to do that. They were to be good citizens of the Roman Empire, but they can't say he's Lord. Like, there's a limit to what I will do before you or how I will submit to you. I will not submit to you in that way, as giving you that ultimate authority over me. And it applies to wives, It applies to slaves and their masters. It applies to subjects and their kings and to elders and churches, all right? You know, we are all called to submissive roles, every one of us. But no other human being is Lord over any of us. You know, there there are situations even where, um, yeah, like, A husband needs to be told, yes, your wife is called to submit to you, but you are acting like the Lord of your wife, and you need to stop it. You know, like there's the understanding of what is the proper role of submission and what is the proper role of an authority. For every Christian, he only has one Lord, and his name is Jesus. But sometimes Jesus assigns us to difficult places. And we are to accept those with joy and faith as part of God's grand design. No matter where he puts us, he is the one who's sovereign. So I want to end by bringing us back to that, that young guy, that 22-year-old, who's a, um, a bondservant of some man on the island of Crete in some church where Titus arrives. He reads this letter, and he's thinking, what am I to do? But I want you just to imagine that guy. I want you to think of that young man as a man who loves the Lord. Like, he's one of those guys who's on fire for the Lord. He is so excited about the gospel. He wants people to be saved. He hears about the, the stories of Paul and what Paul is doing and spreading the gospel around the world. And he's like, I want to join Paul, I want to be a missionary, I want to serve the Lord. I want to be used by God. I want to go back and I want to tell the people from where I was taken. I want to tell them about Jesus. And there's only one thing holding him back. And what is it? He's a slave. Can you imagine like how overwhelmingly sad that would make him feel? Like the despair of that. Like the fact that I think he would be like, but I want to be used by God. I want my life to matter for the glory of God. And he feels useless and trapped and powerless to advance the gospel. And then the Apostle Paul himself says that he is to remain and serve his unsaved master in some remote Cretan town. And he thinks, what kind of kingdom building life is this? This is sad. I'm depressed like my heart aches this is what i'm being asked to do and you know i've been applying this verse i think rightly so at the end of the at the end of verse 10 in everything that they, they may adorn the doctrine of god our savior i've mentioned that several times in the last couple of weeks that wherever god places you your life should be adorning the gospel the doctrine of god it should be a frame like a beautiful frame that depicts the glory of god But it's interesting, he specifically says this to the one who's the slave. He's saying this to the ones who see no earthly reward in life. Who have no titles, who have no freedom. Who are trapped. Almost in a literal sense. He says, if you serve the Lord faithfully where you are, if you... If you are not argumentative, if you don't steal, if you are faithful to the one that you are in God's providence called to right there, if you serve faithfully, you are a beautiful frame to the good news of God. You are like a spotlight on the gospel. Your life adorns the message that we preach. In your faithful and simple service to Christ, In your role, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, you are adorning the glory of Jesus. Know that people can see the beauty of Christ by watching you in a difficult place. No matter how stuck you feel, no matter how trapped you feel in the moment. Your honesty, your joy, your kindness, your submission, your self-control, your love, and your faith is a spotlight on Christ. So the question is, can those around you see it in those moments? Can they see, wow, you know what, life, life didn't go so well for that person. Or they're in a really hard place. And that could be some external circumstances, like, hey, your parents were born into slavery and now you are. Or you got this particular lot in life. And we can all be honest, it wasn't the best lot. But can you say, but you know what? My life can adorn the very good news of God. And that's what He's asking me to do. And it's effective. And powerful for his kingdom to do so. Can people around you see that? Can your parents see it? Can your kids see it? Can the people you work with see it? Because Paul's telling these, these bondservants, these bond you know what? Let the world see how good God is by how you live your life in this difficult circumstance. This is the glory of our calling in Christ. That no matter what part you are given in God's plan... No matter where you live or when you live or what you're doing, you're an instrument in God's hand to adorn his beauty. Jesus lived this way. Not my will but yours be done. You could have said, you know what, I kind of want to take the kingdom. I want to like take what's mine now. But instead it was like I will live the life of a servant. I will submit to my father's will. Even to the point of death. And in that, you see the glory of God. And God gives us grace to all go to that point. To all live to the point where we say, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. However low it seems, how much I don't want to be here, but I do want something, Lord. I do want my life to matter for you. And he'll say, absolutely, your life can matter for me, even in this circumstance. So remember that God's grace is sufficient to make us all useful no matter how difficult our circumstances are. Let's pray. Lord as we leave this passage I I know that I can't even feel the weight of this of what this would have felt like to hear it as a a Christian in the first century knowing that I was stuck. It would have been easy to just say, and kind of transfer this to today and not deal with the the heaviness of what's being said here. Um, But I want that heaviness to weigh upon my own heart. That I would be fully um, willing to, to walk in whatever shoes you ask of me to walk in. And to know, Lord, that that is exactly how I can bring you glory. Your grace is sufficient to sustain me and your grace is sufficient to use me for your kingdom purposes. Help us, Lord, to um, embrace this and to, to know that this is uh, what you have supplied us with. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.